This episode, you meet Pete Cluck. He went to Air Force to become a pilot and also a gymnast. He, uh, from his squadron honor rep days, he uh, migrated to the Wing Honor Committee chairman our first year. He was on the soups list many times and was a distinguished graduate in our class. Pete, uh, on active duty, became an F-4 pilot, uh, followed by an F-16 pilot stint, where he was also the IP pilot of the year in F-16s. And at midway through his military career, or actually at the end of his military career, Pete uh, got a calling to become a missionary in Cameroon. This is quite a story. So, so thanks for doing this. I, I appreciate this. We, um, I usually ask the, the question at the start of all these is what, uh, what message do you have for the uh, incoming class, the current cadets, the recent grads, and the old goats like us? Well, John, I'd have to say to all those grads uh, of those various categories that you mentioned that uh, the biggest thing I want to communicate is it really is worth it. There's times where you're frustrated and you're discouraged and you're depressed and uh, things aren't going well and you wonder, what the heck am I doing here? But uh, not just the academic environment, but the relationships you build, the lessons you learn, the, the character qualities that come just being there and being in that environment for four years will change your life and they will prepare you for all kinds of things that you never expected you'd have to face. And uh, it's a tremendous privilege to, to be able to be in an environment like that, that just, it teaches you more than just some academics and some military skills, but it really can impact your life uh, for good uh, if you let it. Do you think, do you think it uh, hurts your youthful uh, exuberance at all, your, your, your young years? Uh, I don't think so. We we certainly had a lot of fun when we were there. We got in trouble uh, in a good way, I would say. But uh, yeah, I, I don't ever regret uh, missing out on a single thing uh, going there at the, to the academy for those four years and, and not being able to do everything that my peers back home were doing. But uh, but the, the opportunities, the places we went, the things we did were just uh, incomparable, I would say. <laughs> That's for sure. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Ready? Um, so, so where did you grow up? I grew up in uh, Connecticut, just north of New Haven. Thought I might go to Yale uh, and be on the gymnastics team there or Cornell, but uh, God uh, moved me in a different direction and ended up uh, there at the Air Force Academy in the summer of 72. Well, I, uh, my dad was a B-24 pilot in World War II. And uh, the, the amazing thing was he was a, a commander of a B-24 in the Pacific at age 20. And uh, that kind of impacted me uh, growing up. He didn't actually talk much about being uh, a military aviator or his wartime experience, but I started thinking about how neat it would be to be a pilot and read a book about uh, Air Force uh, and Air Force cadet when I was in high school. And I thought, that sounds like that'd be a great place to go. They have a great athletic program. I was into gymnastics at the time. And, uh, and of course the price was, uh, was very reasonable. And uh, I just thought it'd be a great school to go to. And uh, I applied and sure enough, I got accepted. Were you recruited for the gymnastics at all? Uh, I would say slightly. I, my gymnastics career, I would say was, I was a big fish in a little pond in Connecticut gymnastics back in the mid seventies. I, I did real well, I was a state champion, but my skill level really was not a collegiate level uh, at that time. And uh, so I, I was on the team for a couple of years and then uh, moved on to other things. So th you were on the jock ramps as a dually? Yeah, that's right. As a dually, I was. 
<laughs> so, so, but gymnastics people, you don't eat that much anyway. So it, it was just a stress, stress-free meal or how, how did that work? <laughs> well, I don't remember. That was a long time ago, John. I just remember meals, meals were still stressful as, uh, as you can remember. Yeah. Not a fun time. So when you first show up in at the, in the Springs, what, I mean, you're thinking, oh, I could go to Yale or I could be doing this. What, what, uh, what was your first impression of that summer, that be, that first, that beast summer? Well, I was pretty overwhelmed, of course, by uh, all the differences. I'd never been in an environment like that, like most of us had never been in an environment. But uh, I was in a, a good squadron and we worked together well and uh, I was able to you know, to enjoy parts of it at times. And, uh, and I think I learned an awful lot about teamwork that first summer and really that whole first year, just working together and how I, I couldn't do everything, but together we could, we could accomplish the objectives, whether it was on the obstacle course or in Jack's Valley or, or anything else. Uh, so that gave me a lot of, of confidence in, in going forward into harder challenges later in life. So what, uh, what was your dually squatting? What was that like? Uh, it was, uh, it was okay. I, I don't remember anything really especially great about it, it or different. I would say we had, uh, what I remember were good, uh, upperclassmen. They treated us fairly tough, but fairly and, uh, made some good, uh, some good friendships that still last today going back to uh, the Dooley year. And then the other four years I was, uh, the other three years I was there in 38 squadron. I was Rebel 11 was my Dooley squadron. Rebel 11. Okay. So you went from old dorm to new dorm. You went from shining floors to carpets, right? Yeah, that's right. Back then, uh, 35 and 38 were the only squadrons that had carpets. So we never had to buff floors ever. And it was really, it was really quite, quite nice back then. It was a real privilege. <laughs> Must have been boring. <laughs> <laughs> uh, they found other things to keep us busy. <laughs> <laughs> what, uh, what, so what did uh, your, your uh, summers look like? Well, I did uh, uh, third lieutenant over in Germany at uh, um, an, uh, an R4 base there and got to get a couple backseat rides in, a, in an airplane in RF4 and threw up both times. So that was a good <laughs> introduction to my aviation career. And, uh, and then uh, went to Airborne uh, with the, the grunts and spent three years running around and really yelling and screaming and jumping out of airplanes, getting my uh, Airborne badge. And, uh, and then I taught a couple summers uh, doing a, a situational leadership course uh, for a lot, of, uh, a lot of second class and first class folks. And that was, one, that was really an impactful time for me. You know, I didn't think the summers would be all that, that great. You know, you fill up your three weeks here and three weeks there, and then you go on vacation. But uh, teaching and leading those, uh, those situational leadership courses where we talked about leadership and we and we discussed discussed uh, case scenarios. It really helped me learn a lot about leadership, which which was very very helpful for me, both in my Air Force career and what I did after I left the Air Force. So how did you how did you get that deal? You know I don't remember. Um, it might have been associated with my involvement with the Cadet Honor Committee. Uh, I was on I was a Cadet Honor or Squadron Honor Rep, and then my our first year, as you probably remember, I was the Honor Committee Chairman. So uh, involved just in, uh, in values and uh, honor and ethics. And uh, somehow I got tapped to, to teach uh, that course uh, for the, the two summers, the second degree summer and first D summer. So just to, just to make sure everybody listening understands this, 
uh, Pete was not in not my squadron. He was one of the smart guys. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I don't know about that. <laughs> so, what, did you get did you get any awards as a cadet? Um, well, I got an award for being the cadet uh, honor committee chairman, and uh, I was, uh, I guess, a distinguished graduate when we graduated, an honor graduate, whatever that that was. Uh, <laughs> I, I didn't, I, I didn't make. <laughs> I, 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 I was on the soups list most of the time. I, but not all the time because there was a, a couple of uh, semesters where my grades weren't exactly stellar, and so I didn't make the dean's list. But uh, and just yeah. for those listening, I the soup had two lists, and so did the dean, and I was on both of them. I was not, <laughs> I was not on the good list; I was on the bad list. <laughs> <laughs> oh, but you graduated, John, and that's good. <laughs> well, and and in our era. Uh, Pete uh, talks about being an honor grad. We graduate numerical order from top to the bottom. Yeah, uh, they, they don't do that anymore. I think uh, I, I don't know. Really. That's yeah, they do it by alphabetical by squadron. They do still have the honor grads, I guess, but then everybody else is alphabetical by squadron. Okay. So I, I like to brag that there were I think there were forty honor grads. Is that right in our class? I think something like that. Yeah. And there were only uh, twenty guys in the back row. Oh, so you guys were more more special than the rest of us. Huh? I was in the back row, and I was one of the twenty that got the standing ovation at the end of the ceremony. So how's that? How's that? Because <laughs> people were thrilled that the three hour thing was finally over. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So uh, with that stellar uh, performance and and the jock ramps, and everything, did you ever think of quitting? You know, I don't think I ever did, John. Um, it was challenging. It was frustrating at times. Uh, the long nights and uh, all-nighters doing uh, papers and trying to get them done. Uh, being there cooped up on the side of the academy, as you as you recall back then, uh, we didn't have very many privileges as uh, as duallys or third classmen. We were stuck there pretty much, uh, as far as going downtown or getting off off base. But uh, I don't think I ever did. I, uh, I, I, I saw what a good deal this was, and I really enjoyed it. And I look forward to being an Air Force officer and, and seeing what was ahead there. I, I got to uh, agree with you on that. I never thought of quitting. I thought they were going to throw me out many times, but I never I, – <laughs> I, figured, I figured if they tossed me out, that's one thing. But I'm, I'm not leaving this place on my own volition. Yeah. And right. um, that's part of the stubborn nature, I think, uh, that some of us <laughs> down at the bottom had. Um, <laughs> I do, I do want to commend you for one thing, and that was uh, Steve Odehorn was in my squadron through two of the three upper class years, and then our first year because of sta- because of balancing, I guess he got rotated out to your squadron. Right. Yeah. And and he told me that you're one of the most welcoming, friendly guys that uh, he he came across. He was really he was really devastated having to leave our squadron because we had quite a tight group, uh, and I just want to thank you for that. Well, thank you, John. Thanks for that. Uh, we welcomed uh, Steve in, and uh, he fit right in real with the you know, All-Stars. And I'm glad to have him as a classmate and a squatter mate. So then you got to go to Columbus. That's right. Yeah, got to go to Columbus and fly in the weather and uh, and survive uh, tweets and uh, and then T-38s. Um, I would say I was I was a decent pilot, but I really uh, figured out the academic system and was able to do real well in the academic side. So uh, while my flying skills, I'd say, were were average and passable, uh, 
what I what I enjoyed there was just learning how to do all the academic type stuff and take the tests and uh, and that was a really good experience being there with with guys and just learning how to fly and, and slugging it out together and uh, encouraging one another when you had a bad day and, and moving forward. And you you rolled out of that into fighters, right? Yeah, I went to uh, Homestead to uh, to fly F4s. And uh, that was, at the time, the, the best airplane available for us. So I was thankful for that. Uh, that was before we really had much in the way of uh, F-15s. And, of course, F-16, the, the Vipers hadn't come out yet. So uh, I went down there to, uh, to Homestead and, about, and spent about six hours there and then some other training and ended up at Clark Air Base uh, for my first real assignment for two years uh, flying F-4Es in air-to-air squadron, which was kind of the, the cream of the crop back then. Now, now tell tell the crowd because I, I have Philippine stories as well. What did you think of the uh, the flight patterns and the weather and everything in the Philippines? Oh, it was definitely uh, different and challenging. And uh, yeah, we had some real weather issues there. Of course, with typhoons coming through and <laughs> and the big storms. And uh, the Philippines is a great place to to learn and to grow. But I, I do want to tell one one story about being in the Philippines, which really marked me. Uh, as a young officer, so I'm, I'm a new, probably still a second lieutenant, maybe a brand new first lieutenant. I'm in the squadron, and of course, we get additional duties. We're not just flying every day. We have these other duties. We're maybe in safety or stand eval or training or all this kind of stuff. So my very first job as an Air Force officer uh, in a squadron was I was assigned to be the snack bar officer. okay so here i'm thinking wait a minute i just finished four years at the academy and i got through uh pilot training and f4 school and i'm here as a snack bar officer which well you're also superintendent's list man you're like the sharpest guy (laughs) (laughs) yeah so anyway i'm thinking huh well okay so what that really meant was you go to the the bx and you buy beer and soda (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and candy and chips and you keep the fridge stocked and that's your job and you count up the cash that's in there and you make sure it gets to the right place but uh you know i i had uh i learned a great lesson from that and it, it really impacted me for probably the rest of my life because i had uh i had become a christian at the air force academy i'd found uh, the joy of uh of believing in jesus as as my savior and I started reading the Bible, and uh, somewhere along there, I came across a verse in the book of Colossians, which says, whatever you do, do your work wholeheartedly as unto God and not unto men. And so here I am, I'm the new snack bar officer, and I'm thinking, all right, I ought to do this job, this slug a job wholeheartedly, <laughs> and just do the best job I can. So how can I do it even better? How can I just not get by and survive this job? but how can I excel? And, uh, and so I decided, well, I'm going to figure out what these guys really want and make it even better and really and do a bang up job of being the snack bar officer. And what I learned from that was people notice when you do a job yeah. well, yeah. No, matter what, no matter what the job is. And uh, so after about six months in this slug bottom of the barrel job, um, I got relieved from that job not fired but i got promoted to work in the weapons shop which was probably one of the highest prestige jobs in the squadron and i said huh look at that you do a good job in one thing and people are going to notice it 
and you're not going to have to stay there the rest of your life. And uh, it was just a good reminder for me to do the best job no matter where I am and, and leave the results up to somebody else. I, I totally, I totally relate to that. I had a similar deal. My first, uh, first time in the fleet and in the, in the squadron, they made me the coffee mess guy and I had to deal with all kinds of weird little things. And you're right. If you, no matter how mundane or how immaterial the job is, certain jobs have high visibility. Yeah. And this one in my squadron, even though it wasn't my flying job and it wasn't my legal officer job, it was this coffee mess thing. It had visibility because you're touching every single officer from the commanding officer down to the lowest, lowest rank guy. And they all, they all have to deal with you on a personal basis based on uh, name tags and coffee and snacks and things like that. Yeah. Talking about yeah, it's 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 uh you never know where the challenges are gonna come from. Or the opportunities. Yeah, that's right. Yep. So then you got to go dry out in Spain. Yeah, I got to go over in Spain and uh uh I got I transferred over there because they were flying F fours too, but I also had some uh some insight that uh, they might be transitioning to the F-16 in a few years. Ah. So, so I went over there in uh, 1980, and uh, around the end of 82, they started transitioning into, uh, into F-16s. And uh, I hoped and I prayed and I worked hard. And uh, I was fortunate enough to be selected to be part of the initial uh, transition cadre. So I uh, came back to McDill here in Tampa and... Uh, re-upped into the F-16 and then went back over there and spent a total of five years in uh, in Spain. And that was a real formative time as well. My time in the Philippines was, was really good as a young uh, as a young aviator, but I think I really grew as a pilot, as an officer, as a leader a lot during the five years that I was uh, over in Spain, flying first F-4s and then F-16s, sitting alert, uh, going to Interlick and going to Aviano, and uh, helping to lead uh, big scale uh, elephant walk exercises and uh, and just learned an awful lot. So is Spain part of NATO? Uh, Spain was part of NATO back then, yeah. Okay. So I, I'm just curious what the missions were. And you said uh, you would go to other bases as well and do uh, what is elephant walk? Is that something you can talk about? Well, not really. Let's just okay. say we got, a, we got a lot of airplanes and we pretended to fly off and do bad things. Okay. No, that but, uh, yeah, I'm sure in the, in Clark you were part of uh, was it Cope Thunder? Did you do any of those? Yeah, Cope Thunders, uh, Cope Thunders, and also some red flags. I think we did two red flags when I was in uh, in uh, Torone as well, and uh, that was a, a real eye opening experience being up there with hundreds of other airplanes and <laughs> trying to stay stay out of each other's way and yeah, yeah, the the, the coordination of that stuff is pretty wild. Yeah. But going, but being both in Spain and and going to Japan and to Korea and then being stationed—I mean, being in the Philippines and going to Korea and Japan—and then being stationed in Spain and being pretty much all over Europe uh, on various TDYs, uh, it really helped open my eyes to the the broadness of the world, and and to see all these different cultures and all these different values and all these different people, and that was real important to me later on. Uh, later on in life when I was dealing a lot more with different cultures and the f- different nations and things like that. So it was, it's kind of a good, a good prep time. So before we leave your active duty life, I got another kind of charged question. That is, did you ever have any close calls? Yeah. I, uh, when people ask me what was the closest I ever came to dying, it was, uh, it was here at McDill 
where I ended up my Air Force career, the last four years, we're here teaching guys how to fly the F-16. And uh, we were out, out, we were out uh, over the Gulf of Mexico. I was flying with a, a young guy that was just learning how to, to fly the airplane. We're doing some, uh, some turns without calm, come out turns. So you're not saying anything over the radio. He's just watching me as the leader and uh, maneuvering to, to get in position as we're, as we're flying around and doing different things. And so I'd, I'd send little signals with my wings and he was supposed to interpret those and do the right thing. And unfortunately, uh, I was kind of hidden in the sun to him mm. and he thought, he thought I went right and I was really coming left and he didn't do what he was supposed to do when, uh, when we lose sight of one another. And he mm. just kept pulling toward me and pulling toward me and hoping he'd see me. And I'm watching him and he's getting closer and closer and closer. And it's his job to stay out of my way. My job to monitor him, but he's supposed to stay out of my way and stay in formation. And uh, at, at nearly the last second, I, I finally pulled out of his way and, and avoided a collision. And uh, needless to say, he had to repeat that ride because that was a pretty serious violation of, of our tra training rules. But uh, the other time that, that wasn't uh, nearly as a happy ending was when I was in Spain uh, flying F-4s actually. And uh, we were doing some, some dogfighting out over a cloud bank and as I'm looking back at the guy who was practicing attacking me he uh, went down into the clouds and uh, and didn't come back up mm. so I called called on the radio and called knock it off and uh, my rear seater and I go back to try and find out that area and we see this big black plume of smoke coming mm. and uh, those guys both died that day and that was a very sobering experience for me as a as a young captain at the time to be there when two guys died, they were both happened to be IPs. And uh, of course they never really found out exactly what happened, probably some spatial disorientation, but uh, very sobering to realize that even in peacetime, you know, we're, we're fighting uh, with a thin margin of safety and we had to be real careful to preserve that. Yeah. The third dimension's unforgiving. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Um, I was going to ask, did you have any stressful things that, and, and ways to relieve stress that you wanted to share? Because between the academy being, now being on soups list all the time, you, you obviously were excelling. But I'm also assuming there were some stressful times that you had to figure out how to, how to have a steam relief and, and same thing when the, in the flying world. Yeah, I think a couple things were helpful for me. Uh, getting out outside, I'm an outside kind of guy. I like being outdoors. Um, when I was in Spain, I started taking up some running and uh, my first and only marathon I ran in Madrid. And, uh, and that was fun just to be uh, training for that and getting out of the office and spending time plodding along on the, on the roads and, and training for that and finishing, uh, finishing under my goal time, which was, uh, I, you know, a lot of fun to do. Um, <laughs> during I, day I, fun, right? <laughs> yeah, that's right. And, and as I said, that was my last one. I said that was nice, but that was enough. <laughs> I, I think another thing for me was just developing really good friendships. When I think back of my time in uh, in active duty, the 13 years both in in uh, in the Philippines and in Spain, and the last four here in Tampa, just developing and maintaining some really good friendships with guys. Uh, I was single during all those times, but I hung around with, uh, got to hang around with their kids and watch their marriages, watch their parenting. And uh, in, my, in my case, go to 
and uh, just have a lot of fun. Some of those guys are my dearest friends today, guys that I would, I would die for today because of the things we shared and the heart-to-heart interactions we had and uh, some of the hard times. One of the guys uh, crashed or his airplane crashed uh, in the Philippines. Uh, mm. I mean, I'm sorry, it was in Spain. Uh, his airplane, his F-16 went out of control and he bailed out and he survived, but we didn't know whether he lived or died for, for quite a while until they finally found him late at night. But wow. uh, those, those close relationships, and these are all Academy brothers uh, and their wives and their families were, were a tremendous help to me in just enjoying life. So then, if I'm following your, your, your biography here properly, then you make the decision after being the IP uh, Officer of the Year, right? Yeah, TAC, TAC F-16 IP of the Year, yeah. You, you make the decision to become a missionary and leave the Air Force. What, what, how was that? How did that come about? Well, that's a great story, John. I, uh, as you said, I was doing real well in my Air Force career. I was promoted below the zone of majors. I was headed to Armed Forces Staff College. Great OER on top of my package. And uh, things were looking really good from a professional standpoint for me. And I, I had never decided I am for sure going to stay in for 20 years or 30 years. I was enjoying it. Uh, I would, God had given me some skills that I was able to, to use both in the flying area and also in the, in the leadership area and the training area. Uh, oh, oh, by the way, I should say being the F-16 IP of the, the year for the tactical air command, uh, I didn't get that because I was a golden hands pilot. I got that, uh, I think primarily because God had given me some, some skills in training and teaching. And I was at the RTU here in Tampa. And so I got to train guys how to, how to fly and the academic side. And, uh, and so that's, that's where that really came from. And I credit again, a lot of my air force Academy time with the, the background to help me become a good trainer and a good teacher. So in 1988, I've been in for about 12 years and I start feeling like maybe I should do something different with the rest of my life. I'm enjoying what I'm doing. Uh, I'm on the fast track, but God just clearly spoke to my heart and said, Pete, I want you to, to uh, transition out of the Air Force and go do something that, that is, is, has a more eternal significance than what you're doing. Mm-hmm. And I'm not, I'm not saying in any way that what, what I and the rest of the guys were doing wasn't hugely significant in, uh, in protecting our country and serving as patriots. I, I respected everybody that was doing that. And, uh, and I, was, I enjoyed doing that. But for me, it became a question of, am I willing to go do something different that a lot of guys might not be willing to do? There, there was a huge line of guys that would love to fly the F-16 and have the experiences that I did. And, uh, but, but God just said, I want you to get out and do something that's more significant. So I resigned my commission in uh, 89 after uh, 13 years and headed out into the great not unknown of being a, uh, a full-time missionary with an organization called Wycliffe Bible Translators. And that was originally in uh, Tampa, right? Well, I left from Tampa and I went to some training uh, out in Dallas. And about that same time, God finally, finally brought the women I'd been waiting for my entire life into my life. Uh, Mary Ellen had been a missionary uh, in Papua New Guinea for a couple of years. And we actually met when I was in Tampa and she was in Papua New Guinea. This was before the days of email. So we, <laughs> okay. so, so we wrote aerograms back and forth. 
Oh, wow. And uh, it's kind of a matchmaking type thing. And I said, this gal really is something else. I'd like to meet her. So she finally came back after about six months uh, to her folks home over in Daytona. And we met and, uh, and she, her heart was for missions and my heart was for missions. So we married and have been married now for 33 years. And I am the luckiest guy in the world to be married to her. That's great. So, so, so you take off and your honeymoon's in Cameroon. Is that right? <laughs> well, <laughs> almost. Yeah, almost. We, uh, we went as newlyweds to France because, uh, we were, we were headed to Cameroon, which is Africa, which is Wycliffe Bible translators, largest base of operations in all of Africa. But the official language in Cameroon is primarily, uh, French. So we needed to learn French. So here we had the terrible, terrible assignment of having to go to France for a year and a half <laughs> and spend our, spend our honeymoon year, essentially learning how to eat French food and drink French wine and enjoy French castles and somehow manage to learn the French language. But like then, Inspector Clouseau, right? Yeah, that's <laughs> right. That, yeah. All that, yeah. Oh man, it was, it was pretty silly. Yeah. Uh, pretty hard for us. Which, where was, was that all in Paris or? Other no, it was, it was in a city called Tours, which is southwest of Paris, uh, in, in amongst all the castles, the primary castles in France. And we spent a, a really fun uh, year and a half there before we headed down to Cameroon, which, which as you may know, is in the central part of Africa. And uh, that was a challenging uh, 15 years we spent down there, actually. So 15 years as an expatriate in as I understand it, Cameroon, uh, Chad, and Congo, right? Yeah, Cameroon, Chad, Congo, a little bit in some other countries in that area, traveled around, but but primarily Cameroon, which is a, a country about the size of California with 280 different languages in it. And <laughs> yeah. uh, Wycliffe's passion is to get, uh, to get God's word, the Bible, into every language and for every people that, that doesn't have it yet. So we, we work in some of the more remotest areas of the world. Uh, I'm not a linguist. I was one of the administrators, one of the leaders of our group of uh, several hundred folks there. But uh, our translators would live among the people and learn their language and help them learn to read and write if their language wasn't written down and then translate the, at least the New Testament for, for every people group that hasn't had it. We're not done yet, but we're making great progress and I'm thrilled to be part of that, that group. So for people who have not been there, um, what are the living conditions like for a guy in your position? Well, we lived in the outskirts of the capital, so we weren't living in a mud hut per se, but it was, it was definitely a developing country, a lot of corruption, a, a very weak infrastructure. My wife, Mary Ellen, is a nurse, so she did a lot of nursing, but it was, it was a challenge there to get medicine, to get doctors. Sometimes you have to go and, and pick up the doctor at his house at 2.30 in the morning and bring him to the hospital if there was some kind of emergency. And uh, if there was uh, a medical need, sometimes you'd have to go out and find an all-night pharmacy at, at you know, midnight and uh, collect whatever surgical equipment or medical equipment the doctor needed and bring it back because they didn't have anything at the hospitals. So it was a real concern. We, uh, we raised our two kids there. And uh, we almost lost our daughter uh, one day just because of the, the serious medical uh, diseases she had and uh, the, the medical care, which was just really marginal. But the people were friendly. The food was uh, different, but not horrible. But it was, it was definitely a lot different. You learn to get by with things, without things, I would say, like sometimes water and a lot of times electricity. 
we lose uh, both of those. So you had to have some kind of a backup. And uh, I, I was, it was a safe place, but a very challenging place just because of what wasn't available. I'm curious what kind of food, what was different about the food? Well, it was a lot of uh, obviously local things. Um, the uh, the beef, for example, was uh, range-fed beef, and the cows were really skinny, so there was no fat. Mm. And so it was really, really tough beef. You wouldn't just order a steak and, and chew into it like you would here at a Longhouse, uh, Longhorn Steakhouse. Um, uh, a lot of uh, beans and uh, cornmeal and things like that. Uh, not a lot of imported food like we're used to. You couldn't really buy peanut butter, for example, there, mm. just to be silly about that. But there were things you just you just couldn't get. Um, but it was, it was nutritious. Sometimes you weren't sure what was all inside that <laughs> stew, but you ate it anyway. Yeah. And uh, you rarely got sick. Did you have any uh, uh, water issues, you said? You said yeah, we, being... yeah, we always had to uh, filter our water. The, there was a city water system, but it wasn't safe. So whether you're out in the bush and getting water from a stream or whether you're just drinking water out of the tap when the water did flow, uh, you always had to have a filtration system to, to, make, that, uh, to make that work. Now, did you feel like you were successful doing all that? Yeah, it was really rewarding, uh, John. It was, it was rewarding to see the progress of uh, of our teamwork and it was it goes back to that whole team thing that started for me really at the air force academy you get a, a group of, of uh, varied people with different skill levels some are good in uh, in mental type things some are good in physical type things some are good in practical type things and you put them all together and it's just amazing what you can accomplish whether that's a cadet squadron whether that's a uh, intramural uh, team on the fields of friendly strife or whether it's a team of missionaries in, in deepest, darkest Africa, you can get an awful lot done. Uh, I'm not that there weren't challenges. We had about uh, a dozen different nationalities there. Yeah. So that was a challenge, not, not, just, not just mentioning the different African cultures that we had to deal with <laughs> and the infrastructure, but uh, putting that team together and helping to lead that was tremendously rewarding for me. Problem solving, like just like we did at the Academy and, uh, and getting the results of, uh, of languages that are reached and people that are transformed because now they can understand what God says to them in the Bible, in the language that touches their heart, not in some foreign language. And so you said 15 years there in, in Africa. I assume you came back for high school for the kids? Well, actually, we came back uh, pre-high school for our kids. We came back in 2007 expecting to just be here for a year break and then go back to Cameroon because we still had work to do and we're really enjoying it. Okay. But uh, uh, both of our kids were adopted. They were born here in America. We adopted them from America and, and that's another whole wonderful story. But uh, when we came back in 2007, it became evident that, that both of them had some uh, significant uh, learning disabilities and medical issues that just couldn't be handled uh, well enough with the limited resources in Africa. So we made we made the really difficult decision. It was hard for all of us. All four of us wanted to go back to, to Africa, to Cameroon. But we made the difficult decision to to pitch our tent here in uh, in the U.S. to help take care of their special needs. And uh, as tough as that was, it was the right decision because because they are both doing a lot better now, both with their uh, learning disabilities as well as their their health issues. Uh, it's been a real struggle for us, to be honest. 
but but we were we were able to get the help that we needed in order to effectively help them. And so, have you been back to visit at all? Yeah, I've been back a number of times, uh, both to Cameroon and to uh, Zambia and Zimbabwe and Kenya and Uganda and a number of other African countries, as well as uh, India and Nepal and Costa Rica. And, uh, and these are all part of my Wycliffe role, as well as a, uh, an additional uh, ministry that I've been involved with, which is uh, a, a, a leadership training program, which is called Leadership Matters. And it is the best training program I've been involved in. Of course, that's comparing to all the wonderful years of the academy too. But I get to go around with a group of other uh, uh, folks and help train uh, leaders of, uh, of mission organizations, of churches, of pastors. Uh, a lot of these are, are nationals from the countries that we go to in basic leadership principles. And again, I, I, I think back of that, that organizational leadership uh, uh, courses that I took at the yeah, academy yeah. And, and say, yeah, this is, it's, it's just a, a follow on to that, just passing on what I've learned and to others and helping them grow. Well, that's really cool. I, I, uh, I, I think we're, we're about done with your part of this, unless you have any parting comments for the crowd. No, I, I appreciate the, the opportunity to tell, uh, tell my story, John. It's, it's really God's story. I see his hand working through it. And uh, I can't say how, how thankful I am that I got to go to the Air Force Academy and spend the time there learning, experiencing, interacting, growing, and then uh, the time afterwards uh, on active duty with all that uh, I was able to experience. It just helped grow me into, uh, into the person I am today. And I'm still growing. I'm still learning. I'm still screwing up and making mistakes. But... Uh, but I'm just so thankful that, uh, that I, was, I was given that opportunity. So as I'm speak, if I'm speaking to cadets right now, I, I, I just say, you have no idea what's ahead of you. And uh, you have no idea what, uh, what turns and twists your, your lives and your careers and your families and your, your fates may take. But uh, you're in an awesome place to, to get super preparation for whatever lies ahead. And, and the incredible foundation, like Pete says, it'll take you... It, it doesn't have to be a full Air Force career. It'll take you damn near any, anywhere you want to go. Well, thanks, sir. Well, thanks, John. It's been a privilege, uh, and may this be a real encouragement. Mm-hmm.